you would open up with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 2. And while you are turning there, let me say a special word of welcome to our visitors. Uh, we are very glad that you are here. We're thankful that you're here. We hope that God will bless you uh, as you spend time worshiping with us this morning. And uh, we certainly hope you'll sense our love both for Christ and for one another and for you. And uh, we're thankful you're here. Uh, Luke chapter 2. And I have a question for every person in this room who would say, I am not an old person. So if you still think of old age as something that's in your future, this question is for you. What kind of old person will you be? Uh, in my experience, there are generally two kinds of old people. There are those old men and old women who are incredibly sweet. They are kind and compassionate and encouraging. You go to visit them and you come away as the one more blessed. <laughs> you come away as the one encouraged from having spent time with them. And then there are those old men and old women who are basically curmudgeons. They complain all the time. They can be bitter and unkind, a drain on the people who are trying to care for them. So those are at least the two ends of the spectrum, right? If God brings you to old age, you're going to be somewhere on that spectrum, somewhere between the, the sweet older person who is an encouragement and the, the curmudgeon. What kind of old person are you going to be? Well, the reality is you are becoming that person right now. Uh, the decisions you make today... The attitudes you allow yourself to entertain, you are becoming your future you right now. A person doesn't suddenly wake up one day at 85 and become a curmudgeon. It happens over time as bad attitudes are allowed to fester, as unforgiveness and selfishness are allowed to, to indwell the heart unchecked and unchallenged. Similarly, a person doesn't wake up one day at 85 and they're just sweet. They're just kind. No, if, if you want to be that way at 85, you must be pursuing those kinds of virtues today. So how do you respond to difficult people and trying circumstances today? And are you actively seeking to grow in love and in kindness today? And of course, the key to growing in virtue is first and foremost drawing nearer and nearer to God himself. Beholding God's glory, trusting in His love and His sovereignty and His promises, it is mature faith that leads to godly character. So if you want godly character, you must pursue mature faith. 
Mount Hermon, there is a wondrous and glorious beauty to mature faith. It is not prized in American culture. You won't find celebrities tweeting about mature faith. But there are a few things more precious in the sight of God. There are a few things considered a rarer and more wonderful gem in the sight of God than mature faith. There are fewer things that show the glory of Jesus and are more edifying to others than the words and examples of mature believers. These are the men and women of whom the world is not worthy. These are unique trophies of the grace and mercy of God. Seasoned, mature saints. And this morning, we meet one such person. Uh, His name is Simeon, and he is set before us as a model of godliness. Let's, Let's just remember where we are. Joseph and Mary have brought the infant Jesus, now 40 days old, to the temple in Jerusalem. And they are there because they're obeying the commands of the Old Testament. Forty days old, that's the day when they must come to bring a sacrifice to redeem their firstborn son. This is the day when they are to perform sacrifices for cleansing, declaring that Mary is now clean from her childbirth experience. And these commands that Joseph and Mary are obeying all have gospel purposes. And we preached on that. And if you missed it, you can go to the website and hear it. But now here is Joseph. Here is Mary. Here is 40-day-old Jesus in the midst of the outer court of the temple. Among the hustle and the bustle of others. And they meet this man. So look at Luke 2 beginning in verse 25. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and the sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." Now, in these verses, we have the man Simeon, and we have his words. And his words are weighty. 
What Simeon says about this child is weighty. What he says to Mary about her future is weighty. What he says about what's going to happen to Israel is weighty. And all of that is next Sunday morning. All of that will be preparation for the Lord's table next Sunday morning. So today our focus is on the man himself. Who is this man, Simeon? And there are some things that we just have to admit we don't know. We're we're unsure about these things. Was he a priest? Some think he was. He's found in the temple in Jerusalem. He takes up the child in his arms. According to verse 34, he pronounces a blessing, not just on the child, but on Joseph and Mary as well. And all of that sounds very priest-like. Some even think that this Simeon was a famous Simeon, Simeon Ben-Hillel, a very important religious leader in Jerusalem, a member of the Sanhedrin, son of Hillel the Elder, the father of Gamaliel, under whom Paul would later be trained before his conversion. But the reality is the text doesn't say any of that. And Simeon was a very common name in Israel because it was one of the names of the original sons of Israel. And so was this Simeon a priest? We don't know. Was he old? We tend to think of him as an old man. The text never actually says that he was old. However, Luke does tell us that God had revealed to Simeon that he would not see death until he saw the Messiah. And Simeon, after seeing the young child, says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. So I think there's enough hinted at there to make us think, yes, he he probably was an older man. And by the way, that means he could not be the famous Simeon ben Hillel because he was only 27 years old at this time. So I think this is probably a different older Simeon. Uh, One other point that we're just not sure about, how did Simeon identify Christ when so many others didn't? That is, there's all kinds of people bustling about in the temple courts, likely other ladies bringing their babies to be uh, redeemed through sacrifice. Uh, Nobody else is aware that the Messiah is in their midst. How does Simeon know? We're told he came in the Spirit to the temple. So we know the Holy Spirit was involved. We know the Holy Spirit is guiding this process. But how did the Spirit show Simeon, that's the child. That's the one you've been waiting for. Luke doesn't tell us. We just don't know. Here is something we do know. Simeon is given one of the most concise and yet wonderful biographies in all of Scripture. Uh, I was looking this week at a little book of funny epitaphs, funny things that had been left on people's tombstones, right? There was one about a lady who had died because she slipped on a banana peel, you know, things, things like that. If what we have here about Simeon was on any of our tombstones, that would have been a life well lived, 
This is an amazing legacy. Look at verse 25. Look at this concise description of this man, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Here it is. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Here are all the pertinent details. We have his name, Simeon. We have his location, Jerusalem. We have his character, righteous and devout. We have a particular characteristic that marked him. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And we have the explanation for what made him the man he was. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, you have your name. And you have your location. But if we had to sum up your character in two words, would these be the kinds of words we would use? Righteous and devout. Don't you long for these to be the kinds of words that people would use about you when your life is over? Don't you long to be marked by these characteristics, these these virtues that are prized in heaven and rare on earth? Simeon is described first as a righteous man. Righteous. It's a word that in some ways is, is falling out of use in our culture. In the 80s, it was the surfer term for cool, right? Something was cool, it was righteous, man. I remember that, Samuel? Anyway. For many today, the word seems to have negative connotations. We use it mostly when we're speaking of people who are self-righteous. People who are full of themselves and arrogant and proud. But in fact, the word righteousness is a wonderful word. And it is the right translation here. The word in the Greek refers to someone who is walking correctly. The right path. The right way to go. According to God's standard of what is right. And we are to desire righteousness. We are to long for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Mount Hermon, God ultimately frustrates the plans of those who hunger and thirst for lesser things. But those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for obedience to Him, with a longing to be holy, those people He rewards. He satisfies them. He gives them their desire. Through Christ and the Holy Spirit, those who long for righteousness, they will be made righteous. Through faith in Jesus, we're counted righteous in the courts of heaven. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are made increasingly righteous in this life and perfectly righteous on the last day. You can see, though, why our culture doesn't use this word much anymore. Because modern man doesn't really believe in a right and a wrong. That is, you you have your code of ethics and I'll have my code of ethics. You'll have your morality. I'll have my morality. But who am I to tell you what's right and wrong? And who are you to tell me what's right and wrong? There is no objective standard. No, there's only our contrived systems to help guide our lives until the day we die. But that isn't reality. The reality is that there is a God in heaven and He is the standard of right and wrong. 
All that conforms to God's character and His purposes is right. And all that goes against God's character and His revealed purposes is wrong. Simeon was a righteous man and that his life reflected the character of God and conformed to the moral principles that God had revealed. Simeon was not a perfect man, not by any means, but he sought to live a life of obedience to God, a life that was truly upright and conformed to good and wise commands that God has given us. So let me just ask you practically, Are you seeking to conform your life to the good and wise commands that God has given us? Have you studied God's commands? Do you know them? Do they matter one bit to you? Do you take them seriously? Do you receive them as from a father who loves you and knows what's best for you? Do you love His commands? Are you shaping your life around His commands? Practically, here's what this meant. It means that Simeon lived a life of love towards God and love towards his fellow man. The Bible says Simeon was righteous. It means he did not worship other gods, but the true God. He did not bow down to idols. He worshiped God as God prescribed. He treated the name of God with reverence. He kept the Sabbath day. He honored his father and his mother. He did not commit murder or adultery. And he fled hatred and lust, which are murder and adultery in the heart. He did not steal, but treated others fairly and gave them their due. He was truthful with others. He did not deal in dishonesty. And he was content with God's provisions and did not covet what others, what God had given to others. These are the marks of a righteous person. It's not difficult. We don't have to walk around going, I just wish God would tell us what a righteous life looks like. The Ten Commandments. The summary of the Ten Commandments. Love towards God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We know what righteousness looks like. And Simeon did not pursue these things to earn God's merit or to earn God's favor. He saw himself as a part of Israel. God had freely and sovereignly set his love on Israel. He had graciously brought them out of captivity in Egypt to himself. And in love and adoration and worship to the God who had saved Israel, Simeon in worship sought to keep the good commands of God. It was his love for God that resulted in his obedience to God. That's the idea of the second word, the word devout. Do you see it? So he's righteous, but but what's underneath his righteousness? He's, He's devout. It's an interesting word. In Greek, it's literally the idea of handling something well. It's it's the word used for holding something or carrying something, but doing so carefully, thoughtfully. I don't want to drop it. You've got something precious. You've got something fragile in your hand. And you're carrying it across a room. And you don't want to drop it. You don't want to damage it in any way. Why? Because you treasure it. You hold it well because it's it's important to you. It's valuable to you. And so over time, this word came to be used to describe someone who lives this way. Who lives their life carefully, sober-mindedly thoughtfully 
Because they cherish God. They value God. They value God's commands. And so they devotedly live. They live with devoutness, being careful about the decisions they make and the words they use and the actions they take. It was Simeon's heart devotion to God that made him careful with his mouth and his mind and his body and the way he lived. So he's righteous, he's devout. And then we have this statement about a key characteristic that marked his life. We're told he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting. And it's interesting because we're not just going to see this here. We're going to see it with Anna too. And we're going to find out that there was also a group of people around Anna. And they were also marked by this. They were waiting. That's verse 38. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for the day when God would fulfill his promise. The day when the Messiah would come and establish the kingdom that had been long promised. The word consolation here, it's the word paraclete, often translated as comforter, sometimes used as a title for the Holy Spirit. But in this case, the comforter that they're waiting for was not the Holy Spirit. It was Christ himself, the son of David, the one who would come to Israel in her distress, the one who would come to Israel in her bondage and bring her comfort. And throughout his life, Simeon has been waiting for this one. Israel's been waiting a long time. All the way back to Genesis 3.15, before there was an Israel. I mean, century after century after century, generations have come, generations have gone, and the faithful in Israel have been waiting. Thousands of years have passed since the promise was made to Adam. Genesis 3.15, a serpent slayer will crumb and crush the serpent's head. Thousands of years people were waiting, and now the king has come. The serpent slayer has come. The comforter has come, and here he is, and he's a little baby in his mother's arms. Mount Hermon here is a mark of all who are godly. They are waiters. They know what it is to wait. And even for us, though Jesus has come once and done everything necessary to guarantee all God's promises will come true, yet He is coming again. And when he does, it will be the coming of the kingdom in its fullness. He came the first time to inaugurate the kingdom. And ever since, he's been building his church. And he's going to come again to complete the kingdom. And when he comes, the dead in Christ will rise. Their bodies will meet their souls in the air. He will be surrounded by a host of angels. There will be a great gathering. Sheep will be separated from goats. Those who continue to live in their sin and rebellion against God will be cast into terrible, eternal fire. And those who have been ransomed and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb will be ushered into the sweetness of the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with Christ and His people forever. Are you waiting for that day? Are you longing for the day of the Messiah? Does your heart cry out, Come, Lord Jesus? Here is Simeon, a righteous man, a devout man, a waiting man, waiting on the Messiah. 
And the question for us, the application, it's, it's where are the Simeons? Where are the men and women of mature faith? Where are the ones who are committed, convictionally, intentionally committed to walking in righteousness? I want to live a righteous life because my heart is devoted to my God. Where are the Simeons? Our culture needs them. We need them. I need them. You need them. Are we producing them here at Mount Hermon? I hope you have a desire to become a Simeon. I I hope you have a desire to become someone of mature faith. But there are obstacles in your way. There's the obstacle of worldliness. Oh, it's, it's easy on a Sunday morning when you're hearing a sermon like this to say in your heart, Oh, yes, I want to be godly. Yes, I want to live a life worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be a blessing in this world. On a Sunday morning, it's easy to be crying in your heart, Lord, make me a Simeon. But what, what's in your heart on Monday? Because that's where the rubber meets the road. Simeon did not wake up one day and find himself, oh, I'm godly today. It's just not how it happens. Godly men and women are formed, cultivated, shaped over time through experiences, through trials, but also through intentionality. Nobody becomes holy by accident. You have to be laser focused on following Jesus. And we live in a world of distractions. The ways of becoming godly are not hard. We know them. Be at church. Study the word together. Pray together. Pursue service projects. Use your spiritual gifts. Pursue genuine, meaningful Christian fellowship. We know how to be godly. The Bible's clear about that. But what happens is these things get relegated to the margins as we allow other things to become more important to us. The desire for holiness can get pushed out of the way by other desires. Desires for money, desires for comfort, desires for entertainment, desires for ease. Sometimes it's good desires. But we allow those good desires to take priority over the best desire, which is to be holy, to live a life That Christ died that you would be able to live. So let me be lovingly clear. If you're a member here, this is for members. And anything other than God's callings on your life is consistently keeping you from the stated meetings of the church. Your priorities are out of order. And you're not walking the path that will lead you to become a Simeon. I would ask you to examine yourself. Are the decisions that you're making a help to your holiness or a hindrance to your holiness? So we were talking about this in Sunday school. It just came up this morning about young people going to college and how when parents are having conversations with their young people about where to go to college, We ought to be including in that conversation, where are you going to go to church when you go to that college? 
Because it is better to go to a lower quality college with a high quality church that you can attend than to go to a high quality college and no solid church that you can belong to. And one of the marks that God's grace is at work in a young person is that it's not just mom and dad saying that, it's them saying that. They have that desire. I think one of the marks of a mature believer is that they understand that the local church is the greenhouse of grace. Yes, you can grow a little on your own through personal prayer, personal Bible study, but it is in the gatherings of God's people that Jesus has promised to come in power. And I know to the rest of the world it looks blah and bland. For us, the pattern of Christian growth is, is making it up to church on a Wednesday night when, frankly, sometimes we're so tired. I think, was it last Wednesday night or two Wednesday nights ago, several of us were talking about how hard it can be sometimes for us to be there. And we're talking about how sometimes we get there and we're just barely slogging it in because we've had such a hard day. And you look at it and then the hour is over and you're like, is that really worthwhile? Gatherings of God's people is where Jesus has come, promised to come in power and to work by His Spirit. It's not a question of do you, what do you feel. It's a question of do you believe. If you're a Christian and you're not actively involved in the membership of a local church, you're not walking the path to become a Simeon. Jesus expects his followers, and the New Testament's clear about this, to be intimately connected to a local church. Don't tell me, I follow Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with the local church. That's not following Jesus. Here's a reason why Jesus inspired New Testament letters, and they're all to churches. He expected his people to hear his word in churches. If you are a Christian and you're allowing other things to keep you from your Bible, it's not the path to become a Simeon. If you're a Christian and you are allowing other things to keep you from meaningful time in prayer to God, that's not the path to becoming a Simeon. People who allow other priorities to keep them from church, to keep them from active fellowship with God's people, to keep them from the Bible, to keep them from prayer, that's simply the path to becoming a worldling. A person who at one time in their life used to be gung-ho for Christ and holiness, but as life went on, it proved that the soil was a bit shallower than we thought. We understand how this works with bodily health. I wish you could wake up one day and you're just suddenly like fit and strong and healthy. We should pray for that. I want that tomorrow. I want to wake up, right? And I'm fit and strong and healthy. But we know that's, that's not how God has it work. You become fit and strong and healthy through eating healthily and exercising. And there's no way around it. I mean, you can go do surgeries and you can take these weird medicines and you can do this weird, you know, asparagus diet or whatever. But at the end of the day, there's no shortcuts. If you want to be physically healthy, you have to exercise and you have to eat healthily. It's the same with the soul. You must nourish your soul. You must feast daily on the the rich, nourishing truth of God's word. You must act, exercise your soul in works of active obedience. 
by using your spiritual gifts, by actually denying yourself in practice to serve others so that you're buffing up that self-denial muscle. When you turn off the television and read your Bible instead, that's exercising your soul for better spiritual health. And when you work hard at that project that your manager gave you to do at work, or you study hard for that science test for Jesus' sake, that too is exercising your soul. We need to beware becoming spiritually flabby. Nourish your soul through personal prayer and Bible study, good and serious conversations about important things with Christian brothers and sisters. Exercise your soul through acts of obedience, through spiritual disciplines, through self-denial. Randy Alcorn says it this way. He says, following Christ isn't magic. It requires repeated actions on our part which develop into habits and life disciplines. Christ-centered endurance doesn't just happen any more than running a marathon or climbing a mountain just happens. Or having a good marriage just happens. No, endurance requires a good plan with clear and tangible steps that are taken one after the other. The farmer tills the soil, the weeds have to be removed. He doesn't say, Lord, please remove the weeds. He prays, Lord, give me your strength as I pull these weeds today. Friends, the fight for holiness, the fight for spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, it must be happening now or it probably won't ever happen. Alcorn says the key to spirituality is the development of little habits. The key to spiritual development, to spiritual maturity, is the development of little habits. Bible reading, scripture memorization, prayer, being at church, putting one foot in front of the other day after day, making the right decision this time, making the right decision this time. Not worrying about the future, the next decision, make the right one. Until these become habits through which Christ works. So, We want to be a Simeon. Let's let's examine ourselves. Look at the habits that mark your life right now. If you continue to live with the habits that you have and the way you're living right now for the rest of your life, will you become a Simeon? And if you say, by God's grace, I think I might. Yes, keep going. Don't change your habits. Keep them going. Even if your, your time of prayer seems a little bland sometimes or your personal Bible studies, sometimes you think, ah, no, 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 just keep going. The Lord will bless. But if you look at the habits that mark your life right now and you say, if I just keep living that way, I'm not going to become a Simeon. Let's repent and change our habits. Now, I know even as I preach this that every one of us fails. Especially me. Uh, How often have I chosen to put more important priorities on the back burner because there was something else that in the uh, the moment I wanted to do differently? There have been times when I was watching television and I would have been much better off praying. There have been times when I, I knew I need to speak to that unbeliever. I need to give a call to that person. But maybe I was just nervous about it or it felt awkward or I just wanted it. It was not going to be comfortable. Comfort is a danger, church. We can, be, we, can, we can become drawn to always want to do the comfortable thing. And I feel that in my life. I always want to do the comfortable thing. The path to hell 
is the path of floating away on a comfortable cushion. The path to heaven is fighting through walls. So, so what's the key? Notice what Simeon had. What made Simeon who he was? He, the, the power of the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Spirit of God was upon this man. He was making choices. He had to get up each day and live an intentional, obedient life. But where did his willingness, where did his desire, where did his perseverance, where did his spiritual strength and not spiritual flabbiness come from? It came from the Holy Spirit himself. Which means if you're an unbeliever in this room, you have no hope of ever becoming holy. Because unbelievers don't have the Holy Spirit. What did Peter say in Acts 2? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to receive the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you're doing an impossible thing. So believe. If you're an unbeliever, that's the application for you this morning. Believe on the Lord Jesus. If you're a Christian, the Spirit is in you, and He works as He wills, according to the pace of His own choosing, by the degrees that He determines, but you can move the hand of God through prayer. Pray for the Spirit of God to be mightily at work in you. Say, God, I know you've told me the Spirit is in me. I know you've told me you're making me holy. Can you amplify the work? Can you speed it up a little bit? I really need more patience. Can you make me more patient? We ought to be praying in that way. Remember, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You're not doing wrong praying that way. You're doing exactly what God's told you to do. Hunger and thirst. Lord, I want to be holy. Make me holy. You will be satisfied. You have Jesus' word on that matter. And then just as Jesus died to make you holy, just as he gave you the spirit who's working in you to make you holy, make sure you're not resisting the spirit's work or making the spirit's work harder than it ought to be. As Paul says in Galatians, keep in step with the spirit. You ever try and dance with somebody and like um, me <laughs> and, 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 you know, they just don't know the steps and they don't know what they're doing. So years ago when we were in Mary Poppins, the, the play, uh, all this, all the people were supposed to do this dance at the end. And yeah, it was, it was, it was a train wreck because I just can't do it. And so everybody else is in perfect step and I'm back here just kind of messing everything up. Keep in step with the spirit. He's told you the habits and the, the, the things that you're just to conform your life to that will make you holy. And he's at work to do that. Don't make the work harder than it needs to be. Get in line with what the Spirit is doing. Be on the same mission with the Spirit. Be on the same biblical game plan with the Spirit in your life. And as you do the things God calls you to do, trust that it is he that is working within you to do and to will according to his good purpose. And on the last day, when we who were so rotten and so prideful and so selfish and so dishonest and so greedy... And suddenly, here we are as the church of Christ, blameless and spotless. We will give all the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit who did the work. Amen? May God make us some Simeons in this room.
Let's pray.